turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. My name is Aaron. I'm the teaching pastor here at Living Hope. Uh, I was encouraged as I was walking into the room today. Uh, as I was coming down the hallway, I could hear a bunch of our kids back there reciting Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but over the next eight weeks, starting last week, they're going piece by piece through the armor of God back there, memorizing that section of scripture. And then in late October, at the end of one of our services, they're actually going to bring the kids in here and they're building each piece of the armor. And so they're going to have helmets and swords and shields and all this crazy stuff. And so we're actually going to bring them in. They're going to share what they've learned. They're going to recite the passage. You're going to get to see their outfits and all that kind of fun stuff. So uh, just pretty awesome. And I appreciate the adults that are investing back into our kids. So Philippians chapter 2, if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's word at Living Hope, we're for the gospel meaning we elevate and celebrate the finished work of Jesus and the Word of God. And so we want to honor God's Word this morning. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read the second half of verse 7 and verse 8. And Paul writes this, And when Jesus had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks again for this morning, this privilege. Father, the opportunity we have to be gathered as your church God, I pray now as we walk through this passage of Scripture together, uh, that Jesus, that you would be in our midst, that your spirit is welcome here today. Father, teach us, draw us closer to Jesus. Give us ears to hear from you, hearts to receive your word, Lord, and hands and feet to live out the truth of the gospel that we'll hear this morning as we head about our Monday through Saturday. God, we're so thankful for the gathered church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been in this conversation the last few weeks here in Philippians as we took a break from this book for a season and did our series Asking for a Friend. And now as we've jumped back into this, we've been in a conversation on unity that's found in the local church, but unity that's found through humility. And so we've really been highlighting this idea of as Christians being humble. And what I wanted to do at kind of a lighthearted note today, you guys know I love to tell stories, to joke around, to have a little bit of fun. I found a Twitter poll from 2015 by the president of Lifeway Christian Resources where he surveyed people and he simply asked this question, um, what are some of the craziest fights that you've had in your church? And people could submit these ideas back. And these were a couple of my favorites. And um, I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. We're never going to fight about these things at Living Hope, okay? If you want to fight about these things at Living Hope, uh, you need to go to the church down the street. They will gladly have you, and you can fight there. We're not going to fight about these here. But these are 100% true. And here's a few of them. One church had a business meeting argument. There's a heated debate over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Pastor Joe. That's going to be our next business meeting. (laughs) Another church had a business meeting on whether or not this piece of property that was next door to the church that they owned should be used to build a new playground for their kids' ministry, yes, or should we use it to build a cemetery? Unbelievable. One church had a fight over which picture of Jesus to put out in their welcome center. None of them. One church had a business meeting to... This is unbelievable. Joe, I swear, I will slap you if this happens. (laughs) They had a business meeting to determine if the worship pastor needed to wear shoes during the church service. Yes, you have to wear shoes here. Smelled some of y'all's feet. We're not doing that. One church had a special business meeting because it was discovered, this is real stuff, that during the previous Sunday's Lord's Supper, that one of the deacons used crayon grape juice opposed to grape juice 
And that's unbiblical to not use grape juice, apparently. This is my favorite. A church had a business meeting down in the south on whether or not deviled eggs could be served at the church potluck. <laughs> Unbelievable. Another church down the street had an argument on whether we could even call them potlucks or should we call them pot blessings because Christians don't believe in luck, apparently. This one's hilarious and sad. I got two more. One church had a big argument because one church member hid the church vacuum from another church member. Ultimately, true story, this resulted in a church split. Wow. And the best one of all, and I got, I got a dad joke at the end of this, you'll love this. A church had a big argument on whether or not for the Lord's Supper to serve gluten-free communion wafers. Apparently they were afraid of gluttony <laughs> instead of gluttony. When you got to explain your jokes, they're not funny, but gluttony and glut. Anyways, all right. I'm an idiot. All right. It's like, how do you recover from stupid, ridiculous jokes? Anyways, you know, it's funny to me, the, the, as I read those, there was 25 that Tom Rayner listed in there. And I've been in churches, and I'm sure if you have any history or background in church, you've been in churches where um, little things get out of control and little things become the main thing and distract us from the main thing which is helping people find and follow Jesus. And that's why we're so bent here on just this reality of we have to be unified as a church. We can have opinions, we can have differences, we can have different things that we are supporting, and, and that's all okay. But when it comes to the local church, we're not going to argue about carpet colors, paint colors, furniture choices, none of that stuff. Why? Because we're united around this idea and this truth and this mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. That's what we're about here. And Paul reminds us here in Philippians, we've seen these past few weeks, that unity that comes through humility does not naturally happen. But in the local church, we have to work towards it, we have to fight for it, and we have to put effort towards being a unified body of Christ. Because naturally, if you didn't know this, naturally I'm selfish. Naturally, you are a selfish human being. If it's up to your own devices, you're going to care about your wants, needs, and desires above anybody else's. But we have to choose to place value upon other people. That's what it means to be humble. I'm going to consider you valuable. Your needs, wants, and desires are more important than my own. Therefore, I'm going to pursue you in that way so that we can be unified as the body of Christ. And as we continue this journey here, we're going to start here in verse 7 this week. We see the ultimate example of humility as Jesus. Verses 1 through 4, Paul encourages this church to be humble, and then he Jesus jukes them. And he says, all right, I just gave you four verses on why you should be humble, what that looks like now. Look to Jesus as the prime example of what humility actually looks like, because from birth to death, Jesus was humble. Here's the three things we covered last week real quick, and then we'll look at our fourth and fifth one for this week. Paul said first in verse 5, for us to simply look to Jesus. He said, adopt the same attitude that is found in Christ Jesus. What is that? That's humility. We don't simply admire Christ from a distance. No, no, no. We look to Jesus and adopt and learn and walk the same way that he walked. That's what it means to look to Christ. Second one, we said Jesus could have. Jesus being God from eternity past, we see that here in Philippians 1, John chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, throughout the New Testament, that Jesus being God, not a created being, he could have exploited that position, his godness, to his own advantage. But instead, we saw in verse 6 that Jesus did not grasp onto that. 
Instead, he was willing to temporarily let that go, modeling humility for us, for his glory and our sake. So Jesus could have done that, but point number three was this, but he didn't. You see, Paul reminded us here in verse 7 that Jesus instead emptied himself. We said that's this this self-emptying of Christ's divinity, where he voluntarily gave up his godness for our sake, taking on the likeness of humanity. That's humility on full display. So let's keep going, starting in verse 7, the second half. Here's our four points today. And you're going to see verses 5 through 11. All these points are going to kind of continue to build upon each other just to kind of form this whole logical flow. So rather than exploiting his position, what did Jesus do? Point number four, Jesus went low. Jesus went low. Look at verse 7 again. Now when Jesus had come as a man, we're getting ground level here in verse 7. Verse 6 and the first part of verse 7 were kind of an aerial view of all this stuff. Now we're getting down to this ground level. We see Jesus coming in the likeness of man. Now the end of verse 7, what's he doing? He's entering the world as a man. Hey, think about this with me for just a moment. Joe and I were talking about this today. When Jesus took on the likeness of humanity, remember we said he's 100% God, 100% man, only 200% being to ever exist. When he took on our likeness, No, Jesus did not enter the world as a full-grown man. You ever thought about that? Jesus could have. He could have just showed up, beamed down from heaven, been 33 years old, said, what's up? And just kind of went about his business and done that. But Jesus didn't do that. Moving from the divine to the finite human form, right? So from divinity to full-grown man would have been an incredibly humbling experience for Christ. But he took it even lower here we see in verse 7. How did he come into the world? We're about to get into some Christmas stuff. I'm going to get excited. What did he do? He came as a baby. Christmas, actually, that season has started. If you all weren't aware of that, it is 100% okay to listen to Christmas music now. You heard it here first. On the authority of God's word, you can listen to Jingle Bells. All right? Jesus came as a baby. Why does that matter? Luke 2, verse 7. Let's do a reminder here. We're going to look at this verse in a couple months. So Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him tightly in a cloth. Where'd she put him? In a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Listen, I don't want to belabor this point too much, but I think it's important here. When you see Jesus not just come from the divine to the human, but the divine to the infant, the level of humility that that took on Christ's behalf is unbelievable. Because if he came as a man, he could have come, boom, popped onto earth and been completely self-dependent. He could have just went about his business, done his thing, redeemed mankind, and all would have been good. Totally self-dependent. But because he came as a baby, Jesus was now even more humble because he was dependent upon his mother, Mary. He couldn't be self-dependent. Instead, he had to be even more humble, and the Creator had to be dependent upon his creation. That's incredible. If you're a parent in this room, you're going to understand this. I have two daughters, eight-year-old and a three-year-old. And when you have kids and you bring them home for the very first time, you learn two things really quick. You learn selflessness, right? Because immediately when you bring a baby into the house, like selfishness has to go out the door because babies are extremely dependent upon adults. Most babies, when they come out of the womb, don't come out with a checking account, a car, and a home. They're dependent upon you for those things. That's just how it works. That's how God set this up. Secondly, not only do you learn selflessness, but you learn dependency, Not on your part, but the part of the baby. Why? Because they're totally dependent upon you. We had two little girls, like I said, and I can remember 
Both of my girls never slept through the night, ever. It took a while. Sophia, she's the worst. Y'all know Sophia. Her sleeping through the night, nightmare. It's like carried through this day. But Sophia at 2 a.m., when she would wake up in the middle of the night as a three-week-old infant, and she's crying because she's hungry, as a good father, what do I do? You get up and you get your baby and you feed them. A good dad would never hear a baby crying down the hallway that's three weeks old and be like, get up and get your own food, you mooch. Right? We can't do that. It doesn't work that way. Sophia's dependent upon me as her dad. So for Jesus, man, we're going to belabor this. I'm going to go ahead and do it. To come as a man would have been a humble thing. To come as a baby, totally dependent upon his creation for his survival, man, that's humility on full display. Setting apart, aside his divinity for our sake. Hey, think about this too. Fast forward 30 years. Jesus began his public ministry at age 30. Hey, there's humility on display too. For 30 years, Jesus had to wait before he could go public with what God had sent him to do. In the microwave generation we live in right now, we don't want to wait 30 days. We don't want to wait 30 minutes. If the hot pocket takes longer than three minutes, we freak out. We want things now. But you know, God will instill patience in your life to teach you to walk humbly with him. Man, we've got a lot of truth coming out today. 30 years, Jesus begins to reveal himself as the promised Messiah. He waited that long. The world expected a conquering king. Jesus came as the suffering servant, Isaiah chapter 53. They wanted him to come and defeat the Romans on a white horse. How did he come? A swaddling cloth in a manger outside of the city with the lowliest of low. But as he grows up here and begins to reveal himself, already living in so much humility, you know Jesus was met with mostly criticism and skepticism. Here's a few points I wrote down that I think are important. The religious leaders thought that Jesus was the devil. The promised Messiah, they thought that he was the devil. Matthew chapter 12, the demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to Jesus. So Jesus healed him. Only the Messiah could do that. So that the man could both speak and see. And all the crowds were astonished. And what did they say? This is so important. Could this be the son of David? The crowds, when they saw Christ do these miracles, thought maybe this is the Messiah that God promised us through Abraham. But the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they heard this. And what did they say? This man drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Christ coming into the world as a humble servant heals this man who was blind and mute. And the crowds thought it could be him. The religious leaders chime in and go, no, 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 he's the devil. He's the devil. The second one that I think is important. The crowds thought he was a mobile grocery store. The grass in that place, so they sat down. And the men numbered about 5,000. We taught on this last year. There's approximately 15 to 20,000 people likely present at this event. So Jesus took the loaves, remember the five loaves and the two fish. After giving thanks, he distributed them to those that were seated and also with the fish. Here's a key phrase, watch this, as much as they wanted. Thousands of people, Jesus takes a little boy's sack lunch, multiplies it to the multitudes. These people thinking, wow, this is incredible. What's, what's going on here? Somehow they have 12 baskets of leftovers, the scriptures say. Only the Messiah could do that. Fast forward 50 verses in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 66. 24 hours has passed. On this day, they thought he could potentially be the Messiah. Look at what happens in John 6, verse 66. From that moment... 
Many of his disciples turned their back and no longer accompanied Jesus. Why? Because he began teaching the gospel and the truths of the kingdom of God. All they wanted was free fish and chips. Jesus gave them more eternal life. You know, at the end of Jesus' ministry, just over three years, how many people were part of Jesus' church? 120. The Son of God, the Messiah. Do you know what it takes to walk in that kind of humility? It doesn't make sense. Here's the third one. Jesus, a grown man on this earth, sent to be the Savior of the world, and his family thought he was crazy. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him. They thought he was a madman. What did they say? Because they said, he's out of his mind. Can you imagine if your brother, I can imagine mine, came to you this weekend and said, hey, man, let's go grab lunch. You grab lunch with him. You're sitting down at Panera. How you doing? How's your week? Good, good, good. I'm the Messiah. Okay, somebody get the straight jacket, tie this dude up. He's, something's wrong with him. They grew up with Jesus. They'd seen Jesus. They lived life with Jesus. And now he's making these messianic claims. And they're saying, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. And what does Jesus do? He stays low. He continues to stay humble, walking and talking in a state of humility. Look back at verse 6 with me again. It said he could have exploited his position. What do we learn from Jesus here just the, in verse 6 and the end of verse 7? I don't know about you, but I don't like being humble. None of us like to be humble. We don't really enjoy it. But sometimes we, think, we say, you know what? I'll give humility a shot. I'll try it out. And the moment I'm met with opposition, what do we go? This doesn't work. It's stupid. I'm going to go back to doing things my way. Humility doesn't work. I'm going to do things my way. It's easier to worry about me than it is to worry about you. Do you know my weeks would be a lot simpler if the only person I had to worry about was me? Somebody can amen that, right? But Jesus says, no, 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 that's not humility. you got to worry about other people more than you worry about yourself, even if they don't reflect that back to you. Humility is not contingent upon the other person. It's contingent upon your attitude towards the other person. It's not contingent upon them. What else do we learn from Jesus? He went low. Point number five is this. Then he went lower. Look at verse 8. So Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Deeper and deeper humility exercised by Christ. A few observations quickly. Notice here in verse 5, we see the sinless for the sinful. In its most basic form, friends, we're going to talk about the gospel here for a minute. In most basic form, 1 John 3, 4 says that sin is disobedience to the law of God. We see that play out in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Maybe you're familiar with that story. Adam and Eve seeking to free themselves from dependency upon the will of God, instead exercising their own will over God. Sin is our rebellion against mankind or against God himself. It's not a sickness that we endure. It's not something that a load we bear on our back. No, no, no. Sin is a direct rebellion against the creator of the universe. C.S. Lewis once said that we are rebels who must learn to lay down our arms against a holy God. That's what sin is. We are rebellious against God. Sometimes it's simply indifference to the things of God. Sometimes it is hell-bent disobedience towards him. But the Bible says in Romans 1 verse 18 that no matter how it looks, that our God stands in direct opposition to us as sinners. Do we get that? This is some heavy truth that we got to let weigh on our shoulders this morning. God can't simply ignore the sin of sinners. He is a holy and a just God. 
For God to simply look at our sin and go, it's fine, you're fine, we're fine, would go directly against his character. Because he is holy and because he is just, he has to deal with our sin. And here's the greatest part of the gospel, that when we couldn't deal with our own sin, God dealt with it for us. When we couldn't bear the weight of the punishment that our sin deserved, God did it for us. It's a simple illustration, but imagine that you got a, a ticket or a fine of some kind and you had to go stand before a judge. Some of y'all are like, I've done that more than once. <laughs> Me too. You stand before that judge and they issue your sentence and they say, here's the fine you must pay. I got tickets multiple times when I was a college student. Guess what? It's hard to pay a fine when you're a college student. And you look at the judge and you say, I can't pay it. I don't have the ability, the means. I got nothing. There's no way I can do it. And imagine in that moment that that judge pulled out his own checkbook and wrote a check from his pocket, the one giving the sentence paid for your debt, the sinless for the sinful. He could have had you hold away to a jail cell somewhere and you would have had to pay your own fine. But instead, 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, the sinless for the sinful. Here's the second one, a curse for the cursed. We said earlier that the Jewish people, they would have been waiting for this conquering king, Messiah. But Isaiah 53, the prophecy said, no, 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 God's going to send a suffering servant. Friends, for Jesus to go to the cross, Pastor Joe talked about that in our worship time. The idea of the cross would have totally wrecked the mind of the Jewish person. For, for God to redeem a world through a cross would have totally just ravaged them. Because the cross, we now look at the cross as like this symbol that goes on steeples at churches. And if you're a super Christian, you have a cross around your neck on a necklace. And if you're a really dedicated Christ follower, you probably got a tattoo of a cross somewhere, okay? I'm just teasing. If that offended you, call Joe. That's what, that's what we do, right? Cross, that's how we view them. But to the Jew, the cross was reserved for the criminal. The cross was something that only criminals were sent to. But it wasn't just any criminals. It was the worst of the worst criminals, because a cross was a place of public humiliation and public disgrace. The cross was where you went, where you were completely removed of all clothing and then put up on a hill by yourself in the presence of the multitudes of people so anybody in the city could look up and see you and you were completely exposed. Why? Because you were the worst type of human. And that's where Jesus was placed. Look at what 1 Corinthians 1.23 says. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. And then look at this phrase. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. Because for the Jewish mind, not only was that a place reserved for the criminal, not only was that a place uh, of, of just the worst and the lowest of lows, but to the Jew, if ultimately you ended up placed upon a cross, it meant you were cursed by God himself. That God was allowing you to be cursed in that moment. That he had totally turned his back on you. Where do we see that? Deuteronomy 21 verse 23 in the law of Moses, what do we read? You don't leave a corpse, you don't leave his corpse on a tree overnight or bury him that day. Here it is, here's our phrase. For anybody hung on a tree, that's a cross, is under God's curse. How could the Messiah, the Savior, also be cursed by God? Man, this is such a good truth for us to remind ourselves as followers of Christ today that we were under the curse of sin. 
that we have the curse of sin bearing down on humanity. But our God was willing to step out of the glories of heaven and be that curse for us. Look at Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from what? The curse of the law. How did he do it? He became a curse for us. The, the Savior of the universe becoming a curse for you and me because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Bearing that curse, becoming that curse for us. Bearing the wrath of God upon his sinless body for your sake and my sake. Number three, and we're just about done. A life for a life. A life for a life. Hebrews 9.22 says that according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Starting in Genesis 3, verse 21, we see this idea of the sacrificial system enter into God's economy. Where sin has entered the world, it must be dealt with a life for a life. God would allow animals to be sacrificed as a temporary covering, a blood sacrifice, a temporary covering for our sin. If this is new to you, this stuff's kind of crazy. Let us soak into you just a little bit. Our sin and abomination before God himself separated us from him. And instead of leaving us that way, what does God do? He says, I'm going to establish a temporary covering until my Messiah can come. And he would allow these animals to be killed and their blood would serve as a temporary covering over our sin until the perfect sacrifice could arrive. That is Jesus. 1 John 4.10 says that love consists of this. Not that we loved God. You ever thought about that? You know God is the initiator of your salvation, not you. We're enemies. We're taking up our arms against him, charging the gates of heaven, trying to destroy him. And God says, I love you too much for that. Watch what I'll do. Look at the second part of verse 10. That God loved us and he sent his son to do what? Be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The technical theological word here is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. You're like, why does that matter? Hey, sometimes it's good to learn theology in big words. What does that mean for us? When we say that Jesus was our substitute, it means, means he died a death I couldn't die. I could not pay for my own sin because I'm a sinful, finite being. I needed a sinless, eternal being to do it for me, to hold up my end of the bargain. When we say the word atonement there, it means when Jesus' blood shed on that cross as the perfect sacrifice for us, that his blood completely removed our sin debt. That's incredible. 100% gone. Not only that, Jesus, by shedding his blood, we read in the Gospels that the wrath of God was poured out on him. When he shed his blood on that cross and God poured out his wrath, you know God's wrath was completely appeased in that moment because of Jesus. That the anger uh, that God has against sin that does I deserve and you deserve, that because Jesus died on that cross, Jesus bore it for us. And now that wrath, we don't have to bear that any longer. We go from enemy to friend instantly. While we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. The substitution for you and me. Do we see humility continuing to go deeper and deeper and deeper in the life of Jesus? It blows my mind. So what's our, what's our application for today? And we're done. We just see gracious humility in the life of Christ, friends. Sometimes in the church, we need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel. That, that Jesus sacrificed for me. He willingly came as a man for me. He, he willingly lived as a man for you. He willingly died as a perfect sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice 
for us. So what's the response? Humility. We exercise humility towards other people. Why? Because the mission's important. People's souls are at stake. We said in the very first week of this several months ago that a, dis, a, a disunified church, a church that is not unified, is a terrible testimony to a lost and broken world. If I want to reach people into the kingdom of God, into the local church, we, we, can't, be dis, we can't be ununified. We can't, we can't not be unified as a church. It's an, an impossibility because it's a fragmented and broken body of Christ. And the world looks at that and says, you know what? I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with that. Instead, we look to the example of Jesus and we say, I'm going to follow his example. I'm going to embody his attitude. I'm going to live the way that he lived because souls are at stake. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word for this day, for your church. And even, Lord, when we need to digest hard truth, that, Father, that you extend extra grace to us in those moments. God, may we never get over the gospel. That's such a cliche statement. But, God, we don't want to get over the gospel because that fuels literally everything that we do. So God, in a moment of reminder, I pray that, Lord, this is just also a moment, Lord, where you continue to catapult your church forward for your glory and for people's souls. God, we love you. Thanks for the privilege we've had to gather today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things.